This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, the podcast that introduces you to the rich world of storytellers who share their personal journeys, creative processes, and the stories behind their stories, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to be part of your writing journey. If you're an aspiring writer, a literary enthusiast, or simply someone who believes in the transformative power of words, you've come to the right place. Every week, we'll pop the cork on the world of successful storytellers and give you a healthy pour of inspiration, insight, and empowerment. My mission is to help writers like you realize your full potential through the transformative and therapeutic power of writing. Whether you're just starting your literary voyage or looking to refine your craft, I'm here to provide you with the knowledge, inspiration, and encouragement you need to embark on your own storytelling adventure. So, are you ready to uncork your story and let your creativity flow? Uncorking a Story is about to begin. Sit back, relax, and let the transformative magic of storytelling whisk you away. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Well, hey there, and welcome to another exciting episode of Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm so happy to have you with me as I uncork yet another great story. I want to remind you to please follow Uncorking a Story on all social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and Twitter. You can find us at Uncorking a Story on all of those platforms. Now, if you only listen to Uncorking a Story as an audio podcast, that's not a bad thing, but I do encourage and invite you to please watch us on YouTube, as it's a great way for me to connect with other fans of the show And um, I encourage you to do that. Go to YouTube, uh, find us by searching Uncorking a Story, and then hitting subscribe. Really, it's it's a lot of fun reading your comments and engaging with you in the comments. And sometimes you guys engage with each other and get into arguments, which is always fun for me to see. Now, for you audio listeners out there, I have not forgotten about you. Please subscribe, rate, and review Uncorking a Story wherever you get your podcast. Now, today on the show, I have a very, very cool author named E.A. Amar, also goes by Ed, but his author name is E.A. Amar. And um, this was an interview that almost didn't happen. I reached out to his publicist earlier in the day to let her know that I had an after-hours work meeting that got scheduled over our interview. And um, I I thought I had to cancel. And he had a very, you know, my author, EA, Ed, had a very uh, tight schedule. He only had 30 minutes uh, for me because he was doing a media tour. This was, I recorded this on his launch day. Um, so I need to say he was a little bit busy uh, that day. But fortunately, fortunately, his, uh, his publicist never got my message. Uh, my meeting ended early and I was able to talk to Ed who uh, really, really fascinating author. He and I went went down a few fun rabbit holes during this conversation. Um, and, and one thing, though, that we spend a little bit of time talking about is lessons that we get from rejection. You know, as writers, rejection really is part of the writing process. And, and I personally know how disappointing rejection is uh, as a writer. Um, but really, you can't let it stop you from, you know, pursuing that dream you have to publish something. You know, in fact, rejection and disappointments can really be our best teachers as writers. And actually, they can really be our best teachers in life in general. And you know, the important thing is to try and take away some kind of nugget of wisdom or insight that you can use to make your writing better. Now, this isn't always easy to do when you get that old form letter from an agent saying, thanks for your submission, um, tells you that you're not a good fit for you know what he's looking for or she's looking for at that point in time. 
and then sends you on your way. But sometimes, you know, sometimes agents who, who have, if you've moved them a little bit with your work, they will send you a little bit more feedback, some constructive feedback on why they aren't considering you at this time. And I really, uh, you know, w- would recommend it to listen to that. <laughs> listen to that. There's some wisdom in there. There's some wisdoms that agents and publishers might give you when they're uh, saying thanks, but no thanks. Um, so pay attention to it. And another thing that um, Ed talks about in this episode is his reaction when his publisher recommended that he reconsider the title of his book. Now, this is something he's probably spent, I don't know, a year or so working on. And uh, someone comes along and says, you know, the book's great, Ed, but you need to change your title. Um, Yeah, you could get defensive and say, screw you. No, uh, I'm going to keep the title. It's my baby. But he didn't. He basically agreed with them and he came up with uh, a new title. That was, uh, from my point of view, a thousand times better than his original. You'll hear about that story in this episode. And again, some people might take offense to such a suggestion, but Ed, you know, very maturely recognized that his publisher knows more about what makes a good title than he does. And he was open to their suggestion. And the lesson there is, you know, don't be afraid to kill your darlings. You know, listen to people who know what they're talking about. So there you have it. Uh, again, my goal on Uncorking Stories is to help make you a better writer. So today's lessons are to learn from life's disappointments and, and be open to suggestions from subject matter experts. And now I ask that you be open to my conversation with E.A. Amar. Multiple Anthony Award nominated E.A. Amar's essays have appeared in the Washington Post, the Washington City Paper, Publishers Weekly, and more. He's a former member of the National Board of the International Thriller Writers and is an active member of Crime Writers of Color and Sisters in Crime. He joins me today on Uncorking a Story to talk about his career and latest novel, When She Left, which has been called Crime Fiction at its Best by New York Times bestseller Wendy Corsi Straub. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, E.A. Amar. Thank you so much. I'm really, I've been looking forward to this and I'm excited to talk with you and happy to join your lineup of authors as well. So thank <laughs> well, you. I'm excited to have you here. And uh, we're going to start where I always do, which is where does your story as an author begin? So really it started, um, you know, I, I have a very typical background as a writer. You know, I read growing up a ton. And then I, when I got to college, I started, I took a couple of writing courses and I, I'd always had a knack for writing. And then I learned sort of how difficult it can be, but also how fun. After college, I got a job at a political cable news company, and that meant, and I was answering phones. So people just called in and yelled at me. We were too conservative. We were too liberal. We were too middle of the road, everything. And so it was like, this was pre-internet comments. So I was essentially getting the phone version of internet comments. (laughs) And I needed something that was, you know, I needed a break from that. And I was like, you know, I really loved writing. And I started I started doing it. And then for some reason, it just, it stuck. And at that point, I started taking it seriously. And by that, for me, that meant writing two hours a day. And I've done that ever since. Wow. So when when was your first uh, book published? Yeah. So I started writing seriously for, in 97. And my first book didn't get published till 2015. Okay. I do not recommend my path. <laughs> well, you know, it's not a path that's uncommon. Um, you know, sort of taking a long time. And, and look, I, I talk to authors sometimes, you know, I get one who says, you know what, first one out of the gate, um, you yeah. know, a publisher bought it, you know, without me having an agent. So I had to find an agent, um, which is absolutely the exception to the rule. You know, many times it is a it is a marathon. It is not a sprint. 
Um, but just bridge the gap for me between sort of starting that first one and getting the the first one published. Like what was going on in your life during that time? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, you know, I there were there were successes along the way, right? There was enough stuff to motivate me, um, you know, finishing that first book and getting some enthusiasm from agents, but not having it picked up. Not sorry, of, of the first book I wrote, which was finished in like 2004. And then after that, the second book I wrote got picked up by uh, an agent with a with a very prestigious literary agency, but we couldn't sell it. And then we you know, mutually, you know, on friendly terms, parted ways. And then it was, you know, uh, I, I decided, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I should teach or something. And I got a master's in literature, which just made me want to write more. And then, um, yeah, the unrepentant came out a few years after that. And I, I found a, a agent who I loved working with and that sort of, you know, after that I was, I was on the right path, but there's a lot in that where there was, you know, I remember like thinking like, all I want is one book published. <laughs> Why is this so hard? Um, so I'll never, I'll, I'll never forget that. And it, I always feel like I'm playing with house money, you know, it sitting on the other side of a table in a, in a, in a writer's like, you know, presentation or signing or something it's i i'm always i i'm always starstruck and yeah. and happy to be there yeah so how did you stay motivated during that during that time and what were some of those like wins that you had along the way well i was drinking oh no um <laughs> which wouldn't be very uncommon i guess for a writer either but no i wasn't um i had a part of it was i was reading a lot and i didn't know what i was doing and that is so when you're when you're at that stage and this is something I try to capture with one of the characters when she left this early stage of like artistic discovery where you don't know the rules and you're learning it. And it's this kind of love that is really just like untamed, but it all consuming. It, it's like love in the early days of a relationship, you know, where you can't keep your hands off each other. It's It's that kind of thing. And that was beautiful that was enough to keep me motivated and and then the stuff i was reading because i read everything and reading reading good uh fiction makes me her right so those two things kept me going yeah so just kind of you know it's so important to have wind in the sails um along the way because so many things can take wind out of our sails throughout um throughout the process but like being persistent with it and and staying motivated is is it's so critical did, did you have like a, a good support network that you turned to like during this period of time? Did you have like other authors you were in a writer's group with or mentors that that could really like pick you up when you were feeling a little bit down? No, I uh, didn't. And that's one of the, the mistakes I made. And part of it was because, you know, I went I didn't tell anybody I was writing for a very good reason. I wasn't in the early days, I wasn't having any success and I didn't want people to keep asking me, how's the writing going? <laughs> I was like, this is going to be so depressing. So, and then I similarly didn't talk to other writers because I went to a couple of like early writing groups and stuff and I met people like myself and I didn't like where I was. <laughs> I didn't need to see a reflection of myself in, in these, you know, poor desperate writers. So I, I wrote alone. And I, the only person who knew was my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. And she was an amazing support. 
You know, I, I think she put on a very brave face. I don't know if she believed me or not, but she admired my, my drive to that. And there's a point there, right? There's a point where you're, where you're, where you're chasing something and it's persistence or pathetic, you know, and you don't know which you hope it's persistent, but you don't want to be that, that mocked singer on like a TV show who is a terrible singer and everybody knows about that person. And you wonder, like, am I that person? <laughs> you know? Am I just not good at this and I can't see it because I'm too vain? Um, but you, you know, it, I, I think a lot of it has to come from self-awareness. It, it, a lot of writing, right? Because you're not, you can, I, I read something and I, I have my idea of how it sounds. It's different when someone else reads it. Yeah. Yeah, and it is a long runway between writing something and then getting some kind of validation from it too. I mean, it's um, you know, it's it, you know, in validation comes in the form of finding the agent, getting a publishing deal, getting some positive reviews. But you know, for many of us, we that that that's a very long road, and it's yeah. like you wonder, you constantly wonder, and I, I do too. It's like, it, what is what I'm writing any good? You know, I know that I like it. But is somebody else going to enjoy it? You know, not everybody else is me. Thank goodness. Um, and, you know, you, it's sometimes it's a little too early to, to even put feelers out for a chapter, which is something I rarely do. I mean, I never let anyone read anything that I'm writing until I think it's it's done and, and ready to be you know, queried or, or have a larger audience. But, you know, in contrast, I, I also do stand up comedy and I know immediately if something I wrote works or doesn't work because people are either laughing or they're not. You know, so it's like this this juxtaposition of like when the validation comes. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. I uh, have I've I've never thought about doing stand-up comedy, but I've thought about stand-up comics a lot and the how terrible that must be. And you talk to, you know, like you hear successful comics talk about it and they're like, yeah, you know, those early days like or they, they're there's like a real love they have for that and, 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 a re, and a desire to return to the clubs and experience that instant feedback and it just seems so terrifying to me yeah i remember my very first writing workshop and it was i remember wondering if i could go into the classroom you know standing outside the hall with my story all rolled up and wondering like i don't think i'm ready for this you know i don't feel like i i can do this and it i i was really surprised because at that point writing wasn't that important to me but something about that was so frightening oh yeah i mean it takes a tremendous amount of vulnerability to to go into a situation like that with something you wrote and and share it with the world um because you don't know yeah. what feedback you're gonna get but um you know at the same time you know you've got to be open to vulnerability as as a writer because criticism is everywhere and, and not just criticism obviously praise is is there too but you know you're, you're gonna find somebody who doesn't like what it is you do and they're not going to be shy telling you, you know, go, you know, yeah. not that I recommend it, but go on Goodreads. You're going to find somebody who, you know, <laughs> you get a hundred positive reviews and then you get the one, you know, some idiot who's, you know, maybe jealous of you or, or maybe honestly doesn't, you know, or like what you yeah. did or, um, you know, but it, it happens, it happens. But, you know, you talk about, you know, comics and, and going back to the clubs, any big comic you've seen, you know, with the Netflix special or the HBO special, they spent 20 years, you know, doing, you know, probably the first five or six doing open mics and then, you know, opening at clubs for larger people. And then maybe they're middling at some point and then maybe 10 years into it, they're headlining. And then 10 years after that, they've got the special. 
but but just like writers, you know, it, sometimes it takes 20 years to to build something, build up a career doing what you love to do. And, you know, it sounds like for you, it, it took 20 plus years from, you know, starting to write seriously to getting something published. I'm I'm curious, like, what was it like when when you heard from your agent or a publisher that, hey, look, we, we're going to pick this up. We're going to publish it. Like what what emotionally, what was that like for you? It was over, you know, it was, it was overwhelming in, in some ways and, you know, getting, um, like I'd had, when I got my, my current agent, who's my, hopefully my agent for life, uh, I, I was established enough at that point to, I, I, I think, you know, I, I couldn't have had my pick of agents, but I knew enough and I'd been around publishing enough to know like, okay, here's how I need to do it. Here's why. And I wasn't as surprised that I got an agent at that point, but I really put in the work. Um, and I, and I knew the book was, was good with, um, I, I think, you know, for me that like moment where I, I was really blown away was, um, <laughs> it was with the, with no home for killers, the book that came out last year. And that book turned out to be just between us and, and everyone listening, um, <laughs> turned out to be like, um, you know, a, a bit of a divisive book because uh, it's very dark and readers, some readers loved it and some hated it, but there wasn't really a middle ground. And uh, my editor told my agent, like, guess what? All caps, the New York times is going to review your book. And I was like, well, shoot, that's not <laughs> what I want. <laughs> I was like, you know, because I could take like negative reviews and like, you know, I, I got a great review for that book in Carcass. I got a spiteful one in Publishers Weekly. I was okay with that because nobody reads those. Nobody reads Publishers Weekly except other writers or industry insiders. You know, it's fine. The New York Times, though, I was like, no. And then the review came out. A friend, a friend messaged me online and said, the New York Times loves your book. And I didn't even read the review. I grabbed my phone and I ran upstairs to my wife and put the phone in her face. And I was like, read it. <laughs> she was like, what, what is this? But that was, that was the moment where like, I kind of lost consciousness. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I was like not, I did not react coolly. <laughs> <laughs> but you probably went out and you what, bought a, bought a fancy car, maybe a new house with, uh, with, with that news or. Yeah, no. I think we had. I think we went to Chili's. Nice, nice. <laughs> You're known for the, your uh, baby back ribs, and as my daughter tells me, their dollar Ritas uh, apparently are are pretty good. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I've got college kids, so they are. Uh, you know, they penny pinch with the dollar Ritas. Um, well, what what can you share with us about when she left? So it's a story about uh, a young couple on the run from a group of criminals because the woman in the couple, Melissa Cruz, has uh, left her boyfriend for another man, and her boyfriend was a rising star in this organization. So they hire um, a reluctant real estate agent slash hitman to find them. That's an interesting combination. Yeah, you know, well, the thing is with interest rates the way they are now, if you're a real estate agent, you need a second income. And it's either an Etsy store or a contract killer. Yeah. There's no other choice. It's one of those two. Yeah, I mean, there's there's money in <laughs> killing, um, from what I'm told. But um, certainly not without its occupational hazards. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was fun writing him because the the character Lucky Wilson, like I I really wanted to write that character, but I was keenly aware that the 
reluctant hitman or the conflicted hitman is a comic trope. And I didn't want him to become a caricature. You know, I didn't want a cartoonish person. I didn't want to be a joke because I really started to love this character. And I realized like he needs something authentic and what he need. And I was like, is it, what is he like sports? You know, what's his thing? And I was like, that's not it. And then it hit me like it's his family. You know, he's got this, he's torn, but he needs to honestly love his family and genuinely and powerfully and, and deeply want to be a good husband and a good father. And that opened up a part of me that filled filled him out and he he became probably my favorite character in the book yeah it's interesting how you know your your antagonists you know need to be human beings too and you need to find something you can connect to even they're despicable they could be do very despicable things but if you don't build a little bit of you know sense of empathy even for the the antagonist then it's like you know you're the reader the reader needs to be vested in them too right and i think um you know, I love uh, I read a lot of Carl Hyacin because um, he, mm-hmm. he he does the whole like quirky mystery um, yeah. with a lot of comedy. And it's always in Florida where it was my home state. And, um, you know, there, there's always, you know, something despicable about his characters. But there's also something that you kind of like. Now, not that you root for them, but it's like, oh, well, I see where they're coming at. They, they're doing bad things for maybe the right reasons, questionable reasons. Um, but uh yeah, it's it's uh, and not everybody takes that approach. You know, some some people are just write pure evil characters. And uh, it sounds like you um, you don't. I try to write nuanced characters. Right. But I wanted with with when she left, I really wanted to write. And this sounds kind of hokey, but I, I wanted to have authentic love. So between Jake and Melissa, I wanted I wanted to have a love story between them, you know, a, a love story that involves some stabbing, but also, you know, something that it has to be genuine because it has to be believable that Melissa would leave her boyfriend and risk all that for another man. And he would do the same. So that, you know, they're, that, that really informed that. And then Lucky was informed by the love for his family. And I, I was happy with that because I don't think the joy of love, uh, is something that we see a lot in crime fiction. We see the dissolution of love. We see the ending of love and, and the, the havoc it can wreak, but not, not just that pure, you know, that pure joy. Yeah. Um, is there uh, is there some dark comedy in this book? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a, a lot of that. Um, especially in, and that's what lucky serves, right? That that's his purpose because he's so conflicted and, and he's obsessed with Christmas villages, you know, because they, and Christmas in general, it, it's just like, uh, his, his wife and daughter, are like your packages here. And he's like, it is. And it's the, the new Lemax Christmas village catalog. And he's pouring through it and his wife is like, look, they have a new one there. You know, and to me, I love that because that's, I remember my mom feigning interest or actually not feigning, like supporting my dad for his boring ass hobbies. (laughs) Like she was like, oh, I, you know, that's, that's great. And I was like that, I, I love capturing that. So with Lucky, this hitman who has a very painstaking, uh, Christmas village was, uh, that he meticulously cares for that there there's comedy there, but hopefully it's also got a little bit of, of earnestness, not too much, just a little bit. Yeah. That's so, that is so dark though. I mean, this idea of somebody who's like big into Christmas and is also like a, a contract killer. It's, uh, I, I like that juxtaposition. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of, kind of polar opposites. 
kind of polar opposites there. Yeah, and there's a lot with Lucky that, you know, for him, like, the, he doesn't know this, but, right, Christmas Village is an idyllic thing that he can control. Right. And in his family, is going, he opens the book worried that his wife's leaving him. And, and this is out of his control. And it, it, you know, is very discomforting for him. So having that lack of control. And I think I was thinking about it and I wish I'd realized this before, but I was thinking about it today. He, uh, as a real estate agent for him, I think showing the empty, there's a pleasure he gets in showing empty houses. And I wrote that and didn't know why that was, but it felt right. And I realized today, oh, it's because his family he's i i think there's a fear there that his family is going to leave and that empty house represents that so he loses that and that kind of attraction to it yeah um if i'd known that i would have written to that but dang it <laughs> that's all right it, it, it's a subconscious at work that's uh yeah a, right a gift from your uh your your subconscious mind um so you know you've got obviously a, a female protagonist here with, with a male protagonist um and of course uh, a couple of male antagonists. How, how is it writing from both points of view, from a male point of view and a, and a female point of view? You know, all my books prior to this one were from a female point of view. And this is, and I was, I, I really wanted to do that. I wanted to capture that, but I was very conscious that I'm not going to do it as well as other writers are. I'm a big fan. Most of my favorite writers right now are women and especially in psychological thrillers. And what they do, the insight they have with their characters and how they're able to build them out. I, I admire that. I I don't have that experience. I don't have that lived experience and I can't replicate it. So I don't try. I do try to make my characters authentic and realistic, my, my the woman in my books. But I do it with third person. So there's a bit of a distance, mm -hmm. you know. And and my all of my early readers are women. Um, my agent's a woman, my editor is a woman, and they are all they'll maybe a little too excited to call me out on any mistakes I make. <laughs> you know? But waiting. I need that. They're waiting, yeah. They're like Okay, that's uh, <laughs> that's not how that works. That's right. But that's great. I'm very happy about that. And I think I you want to avoid the mistake that a lot of men make as writers, and women do too, but I see this more with men in this instance where you don't want to show off. You don't want to be like, I am so insightful. You know, let me show you ladies what cramps really feel like and try and write that. That's <laughs> That's not, nobody wants to hear that and you're not going to do it very well. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, but, uh, yeah, it sounds like you, uh, you've, you've got the right approach for it. Um, I, I once wrote a, a love scene, uh, <laughs> in a book and the feedback I got was, uh, you don't know anything about women, do you, Mike? <laughs> I'm like, well, teach me, let me go back to the drawing board. What am I missing here? <laughs> They're like, well, you, you know, it was one of those things and it was helpful feedback, but it was, you know, you definitely knew a man wrote the love scene versus a woman because we all have our uh, different things that we uh, look for, certainly in that regard. But um, it was certainly an eye opening moment for me. There's one thing, a big change in crime fiction that I, I love. It's that there's more, this is going to sound, <laughs> I know how this sounds, but I'm very happy there's more sex in crime fiction now. And part of that is because it's always been, you know, taboo. It's always like, okay, the, the camera fades away when the characters get in bed. But we as crime fiction writers are fine to write about murder and killing and death, but we can't write about, you know, this very revealing aspect of character. 
this very and and the people who are doing it now realize that and they do it so well it's informative it's necessary it's not extraneous material and it's uh and i i think it makes the book like four you know i, I really admire uh the people who are doing that yeah and i can't <laughs> I mean, look, and, and let's not, you know, the, I don't want to say the elephant in the room, but the success of, you know, certain genre of books, you know, uh, and Fifty Shades of Grey is, is probably the, the best example I have for it. You know, that sells a lot of books. And if you yeah. can do it in, in the right way, you know, you can, you'll, you'll get, you know, not only a, a better story, right, more well-rounded characters, but you'll get some buzz around it as well. And, you know, people might be talking about it and, you know, maybe they'll reread that chapter a few times. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. And it's also, you know, it's it's just a big part of the human experience, too. So if you're a writer and you want to write, you know, uh, beyond what your, you know, your, your curiosity, if you're not writing, you know, uh, formulaic stuff every time, and I, I don't mean to put that down. I mean, the same story different times, yeah. uh, which, which you get a lot of, um, then you're going to, I think those writers who, who shy away from that start to look into other things and other things that interest them. And, and that, that's uh, not uncommon for them to go down that path. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you want to like show, you know, demonstrate that somebody is a selfish person, um, yeah. You know, a great way to do that is showing them being selfish in a bedroom setting. Um, yeah. Yeah, that that that'll that it's like the uh, not the icing on the cake, but, you know, it's it's just another way of showing, as you point out, something about, you know, someone's character. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there's writers now. May Cobb is a fantastic writer at that. She's she's great in crime fiction. There's another writer who I, I cannot remember her name and it's going to drive me crazy, but I, I occasionally review books for the Washington Post and I reviewed her book and it was my favorite of the year. Um, it's Lindsay, oh, I can't remember, the book's Hot Springs Drive. It's her fourth novel. Fantastic, you know, exploration of, of people and and sex and how it and how it changes them and how they use it. Uh, you mentioned Maycop. I had Maycop on the show, I think, last year or the year before. I can't remember. Really? Um, yeah. Oh, she's awesome. Yeah, no, she was uh, fantastic. I'm actually looking it up. Uh, July of uh, 2022, My Summer Darlings. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Great, uh, great conversation with May. Um, but uh, getting back to you, um, tell me a little bit about the title. I mean, it, it sounds like, I mean, you kind of gave me an overview of, of the plot a little bit. And obviously, she leaves... Um, a uh, one relationship to to join uh, another uh, well as she, really as she's in, involved in another relationship but how did yeah. this title come to you so this wasn't the original title of the book the original title was sunset heroes <clears throat> which i thought was really pretty but didn't actually tie into anything <laughs> with the book so my editor was like we met with marketing and they think you should change the title and i was i was fine with that i was like i trust people outside of myself for the commercial aspects of the industry that I don't understand. So if they like a cover and they tell me that's the way it should go, that's fine. But for me, so I thought about when she left, when it's, it's one of those things you realize is, as you probably know, right after your writing, you can be blind to this stuff, but it was really, you know, all of my, like I mentioned, you know, I've always written from woman's points of view. And then this book I wrote from the points of view of most of my protagonists were men and they were men dealing with losing women. And it was about how they, how these men are going to react to that. Um, Lucky's worried that his wife is leaving him. Um, 
the you know Chris, who's the uh, the rising star of the criminal organization, he's lost his girlfriend. He doesn't react well. Uh, Jake, <clears throat> Melissa's boyfriend, is distant from his mother, and there's a separation there that 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 really informs his relationship. So this is <clears throat> I wanted to write about men experiencing this and not necessarily their emotions, but their reactions, because I don't think men always display or, or or speak through their emotions so i was hoping to, to capture that yeah i i'd love that that you were open to changing the title you know based on feedback um because you think uh, some people might might either take offense to that or or just you know just say no this is my title this is the book i wrote and um, when, when, when did you realize that you were open to suggestions like that? Uh, I think it was pretty early on, you know, I, I think getting, you know, that long path I took to writing, uh, taught me the importance of rejection and the importance of editing. So I was well aware as a writer, you know, about editing a manuscript, but and, and seeing stuff that I didn't realize. And I was pretty open to to having change from the editors. But part of that is because I my day job's always been in marketing. And I work with graphic designers who know graphic design way better than I do. You know, I, I trust I trust them to know what the right way to, to do something is. Um so if somebody's an expert in their field, um, and the people that my ed- that my publisher has are very good, I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm fine to defer to them as long as it's not you know offensive, as long as it's not uh, completely wrong or misrepresentative. But otherwise, yeah, I'm fine. And they I came up with a title. Had they come up with it, maybe I would have been more resistant. I would have been, even if it'd been the same one. But um, that helped. Yeah. But even just hearing that, you know, when she left, you know, I, I could see it. You know, you hear that you could see it like unfold in front of you. Like it's very visual to me. Um, it also sounds like something that could be adapted to, you know, the big or small screen as well. I mean, it's got that kind of a, a flow to it, if you will, versus what was the other one? Sunset. Sunset Heroes. Sunset or, Heroes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that all sounds like to me. I kept thinking about like Sunset Boulevard, and I was like, "Well, is that? <laughs> are people going to think this is like an LA book or something?" You know. Right. So the um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I I felt like this is more. I don't know. It it it, it kind of ties into to books I like and titles I like that that leave you kind of wondering. Yeah. Well, very cool. Very cool. And I, I know today's the big uh, public publication day as we're recording this. Um, so that's, uh, that's exciting. Congratulations on that. Um, I, Thank you. Yeah. I, I do like to just, you know, throw a couple of other questions at my guests unrelated to, uh, <laughs> reading, sure. writing, uh, or arithmetic. Um, so, uh, Go one ahead. way I like to get to know my, my guests a little bit more is through some pop culture questions. And I'm curious, uh, when you were growing up, did you have any favorite TV shows, Ed? Yeah. Growing up. I mean, I was a Thursday night, you know, what was it? I don't. They didn't call it must see TV, but whatever. The oh no! If, well, if it was NBC, it was absolutely must see TV. Was it back then? Uh huh. Okay, good. Yeah, because it was for me. It was you know Cosby Show, and then whatever they put in between cheer between before Cheers and I Court started. Right. And then I went through a, a phase which lasted, I think, like two summers because I could stay up late in the summer, where I was obsessed with Dave Letterman. Mm. 
sad. I just thought that show was the greatest thing ever. And I would stay up late to what I looked forward to it when I woke up. And then, but I think, you know, a lot of people had get that relationship with, uh, with a talk show. Yeah. Where it's, it, you know, speaks to them. It's certainly much more irreverent, you know, than, than the tonight show, you know, the tonight show was like safe. And then Letterman yeah. was like, you know, it was like zany. It was edgy. You know, yeah. I, I, I feel the same way about Conan O'Brien. Um, yeah, I loved Conan O'Brien. Uh, I listen to his podcast regularly. I think he's just same so here. funny and so fast. Um, yeah. But yeah, Letterman was uh, was great. And, and I'm, I'm also fascinated by that whole like battle for late night time period. You know, when when uh, Jay got the Tonight Show and then Dave went over to well, he went to CBS, right? Because they didn't have one. Yeah. And he was he was uh, sitting kind of second chair at, at NBC. But um, that that's all fascinating to me. Same here. And it seems like, yeah, it, it seems like, you know, overall, most of the like when you hear comedians talk about it, they all really side with Letterman. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, like, and and Jay is I mean, he's still doing stand up today. You know, every Sunday yeah. night he's at the Hermosa Comedy and Magic Club. You know, he's he still works the club. Um, but, uh, it is, it is like comedians of a certain generation will, will certainly gravitate towards, towards Letterman. That's, uh, with, without a doubt. Um, how about music? What, what did you like to listen to growing up? Uh, I was, uh, <laughs> I still listen to the same music I did growing up, which I thought I'd outgrow, but I was a hip hop head. I listened to rap, uh, early on and I think it horrified my parents, but they, they would let me listen or read whatever i wanted which was which was great but it, i still listen to rap for some reason i i thought by now i'm like i'm 49 i got out <laughs> at some point but and i was actually thinking like i asked my wife like should we go to this concert and i'm like the rapper's older than i am i mean is that okay but i don't know the uh there was a point though where i really got into jazz and i wanted to listen to something that had that you know kind i don't want to say a serious sort of and, and rap was a very natural lead into that and jazz uh i was obsessed with it jazz just uh was everything to me for a few years and it still is to an extent but i don't listen to it as much as i used to yeah i love i love jazz i just love, love just going to watch jazz you know not just even listen to it it's like a visual experience for me you know i just love watching uh I just love watching people play jazz chords on the guitar, like because I can't get my fingers to do those things that they do. Um, yeah, but you know, you mentioned uh, hip hop. I, I remember back in the early '80s. You know, first time I heard um, probably Run DMC, I was hooked, and um, I just I loved how they blended like rock, you know, rock hooks um, into their music because everyone else was sampling the same like disco songs back then you know like yeah. Sheik's good times was in like at least three you know early hip-hop songs but um when run dmc came out i'm like whoa this is great there's actually a great uh, documentary three-part documentary on run dmc i think it's on peacock right now a little plug oh, for that really? huh. it's called the kings of queens um it's fantastic it's really really good oh okay oh that's awesome yeah yeah, no, jazz, I actually uh, am really good friends with the jazz musician, uh, a woman named Sarah Jones, who's a local singer here. And when I do readings, often she'll do a, she'll come and do a song during it or whatever. And I love, I love working with, with musicians for that kind of stuff. 
Oh, that's great. That's so cool. My cousin, uh, Mick, is a big jazz enthusiast. He's written uh, young adult fiction around, like young adult historical fiction, you know, around jazz musicians. So he's got one oh, wow. uh, about Louis Armstrong, I think called Travels with Louis. He's got one um, writing on Duke Strain about Duke Ellington. Um, and uh, it's actually really cool because his books have been adopted into school systems throughout the country. And Oh, that's great. Teaching kids that's about awesome. jazz, which is um, which is awesome. Which is awesome. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I realized I plugged uh, my cousin's book when I should be plugging yours. <laughs> <laughs> I always plug other people's books when I should be plugging mine, so I am totally fine with that. <laughs> well, um, as as we wrap up here, I always like to end with uh, sort of a reflective question, which is: if you can go back in time and whisper some words of advice into your younger self, you know, maybe it was that that younger EA who who you know 20 plus years ago was really starting to write seriously what what kind of words of advice would you give offer to your younger self well about writing yeah, um not writing or even about like what life is going to be like in general uh i would say you know i i i would i would tell myself it be more open about it you know, I was like I mentioned, I was very closed off. I imagined I was I I imagined myself as Moses, and I was going to come out of a cave holding commandments, and everyone would gather around to see what I'd written. And when I came out of my cave, there was no one there, and I was like, you know what? I really should have made some friends <laughs> during this time. And had I had I talked to other writers and done what I see aspiring writers at conferences doing, you know, which is getting all the information they can, learning as much as they can, making connections, meeting people. My process would have been, you know, a decade shorter, maybe. Yeah. And maybe not, but, and I, I can't fault the way I came up, but uh, I think that that's one thing I always tell writers is, you know, make, make the connections, make get get feedback. Don't be afraid of it. Yeah. It's a, uh... Yeah, it's something I hear a lot, you know, the importance of connections and networking and, you know, going to writers groups and conferences. Um, those are all worthwhile endeavors. Um, but the other like the other side of that coin for me is like your your work comes out when it's supposed to. Like there's there's a reason why it took a longer time. Um, there's a reason why, like the, the stories that are coming to you now probably couldn't have come to you 20 or, or 25, 30 years ago. Um, cause you know, you, you've lived more life. You're a different person. You're open to more things. Yeah. Um, and, and clearly you've had, uh, a tremendous amount of success. Um, so, and yeah, and most writers, you know, we don't publish till most writers don't publish till they're over 40. Mm. So it's not, it's not, you know, it's not a short game. It's not a, not something it, it, for some people, like you said, it happens overnight. Uh, for most of us though, it's, it's, it's a, it's a slog. And I, and I tell a lot of writers now, especially younger writers, um, who I mentor, like it's, don't be afraid of, this is part of the process. This is part rejection. You've got to learn how to handle rejection. You've got to get rejected. I, I was rejected. I know writers, we were all rejected by almost a hundred agents mm. at times. It happens. It's fine. You know, it's not fine, but it happens. And if you keep going, eventually that, that number will turn. But that's the, uh, that's the key. That, that's such an important part of the process. And it's one that is really hard, I think, for writers to, uh, yeah, aspiring writers to, to realize. Yeah, but you know the the clue there is to learn from those rejections. And if you're if you're fortunate yeah. enough to get something beyond, you know the the form letter, um, if if you get a little bit of advice or if somebody takes the time to say, hey, look, I, I like what you did. You've got a good voice. It, this isn't right for me. 
but if they, if they're giving you something a little bit more that you could use to 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 work with, that's that's even better. And and take that advice. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, anytime you can get that, it's so valuable. And and it it may not it usually doesn't lead to anything. Right. It's it it usually doesn't, but occasionally it does. That that happened with my with No Home for Killers. It was you know I. I Set it out. I sent the book prior to that out to the my agent. Sent it to the editor at Thomas and Mercer, and she turned it down. But she said, "I really." She said, "Show me, you know, the next thing Ed writes." And you hear that a lot, you know. You know, my agent did, and uh, she was like, "I've been waiting for for something for him, so this is great." And then she wanted it. We gave it to her. We sold it to her in an exclusive, you know, because. But that that was one of those things, one of those little, you know, moments that ended up meaning more. That I that I would have thought. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. Uh, do you have a social media or a website you can share with the audience in case anybody wants to do a little bit more digging on you? Yeah, yeah. You can um, find me at uh, the easiest way is my website. It's E-A-Y-M-A-R dot com. And from there, I write uh, every three weeks. I put out a newsletter called Crime Fiction Works about the latest and greatest in crime fiction. And you can sign up for that newsletter at that site. All right. I will put that uh, in our show notes. I will also put a couple awesome. of links to your uh, books in the show notes. And uh, if I track you down on social media, I'll even put that in the show notes so people can uh, can follow you that way as well. Um, but Ed, thank you so much for, for dropping by and corking your story and letting me uncork yours. That was great. I love talking with you. Thanks so much for this. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.